What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. We are ready to offer a highly ambitious trade deal, including zero tariffs and zero quotas. There is no need for a free trade agreement to involve accepting EU rules on competition policy, subsidies, social protection, the environment, or anything similar. I think there is a significant risk of what some people are calling No Deal 2.0. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. So there we go. It's a day where I think you can divide stories into home and away. And we'll get to home in a minute. It's all the infrastructure spending. But first, let's do away. Let's do Brexit. The biggie, of course. The UK government planning to break away from EU rules governing financial services. That's what we've learned. A big column from Sajid Javid, the Chancellor, writing in City AM. However, he does say the UK wants to agree a, quote, durable trading relationship for banks. So he's being perhaps a little bit cheeky in his, in his demands. Uh, the EU's chief negotiator for Brexit, Michel Barnier, speaking in Strasbourg, warning that the EU, uh, warning that to the UK that this is not going to be possible. Given the importance of the city, we therefore need to resort to a, a toolbox including equivalence. Just as in the case of data, where we have adequacy decisions, we're not negotiating on these topics with the United Kingdom. Rather, we are checking that there is consistency, and wherever possible, we will grant equivalence on particular sectors of the financial industry. That's what we did with Canada. And I'd like to take this opportunity to make it clear to certain people in the United Kingdom bearing authority that they should not kid themselves about this. There will not be general, open-ended, ongoing equivalence in financial services. Uh, that was the EU's Brexit chief negotiator, Michel Barnier, speaking via a translatable. For more on this story, we're joined by Bloomberg's Brexit editor, Ed Evans. So, Ed, uh, welcome. Uh, can we just do a little bit in terms of terminology in case people are confused? Equivalence is a kind of technical term. It's not just a, it's not just a word. It's something that means a real specific relationship. It, it, it's a technical term with very real ramifications for financial firms. After Britain leaves the EU, uh, banks based in London will lose their right their passport to offer their services across the European Union. Um, in its place, they would have to get an equivalence ruling from the EU. Now, that's where the EU says, yes, you can come into the single market and offer your services because we, the EU, think your rules and regulations are equivalent to our own. The problem here for London banks is that basically that decision is wholly in the hands of the EU. The UK has no appeal over it in any way. And secondly, the EU can pull the rug out from underneath the banks with as little as 30 days notice. And for banks like Goldman and JP Morgan that have made their European bases in London, you cannot plan a business around that. If somebody can pull the plug 
in 30 days with no appeal. So Javid asking for a permanent equivalence, essentially, whereby that can't happen. Uh, but he also wants to be able to deviate from EU rules. That sounds like a, a, a plan that just isn't going to float with the EU. And we heard from Barnier uh, saying that this isn't going to be a thing. Uh, what is the strategy from Javid here? Because he must have known this was going to happen. And indeed, in those documents we saw uh, under his arm that were essentially leaked, uh, it revealed that they had doubts at that stage that the EU would agree. Yeah, I mean, the Treasury, the Treasury Civil Service clearly can recognise that this isn't, this isn't going to fly with the EU. I mean, this is shades of cake and eating it, having your cake and eating it. Um, what you're looking at here are the opening positions in what is going to be a protracted negotiation. Um, and this should not be read as the final landing zone. I think the landing zone is going to be very different to this. Um, look at lower down that leaked document, and you'll see that the, the, the landing zones are spelled out there. Uh, one where they talk about selective equivalence, so certain parts of the city getting equivalence rights, um, or certain memorandums of understanding uh, and extensive ag- agreements on one hand, or they could uh, accept a time-limited full, full um, equivalence. So there are... Um, potential uh, areas, there's potential there for agreement, I think more likely on the first than, than, than on the second. I think the key thing here is to remember that although London is effectively the European Union's financial capital, the leverage here is clearly in the hands of the EU, in that they can, they can decide when banks get access. Now, Ed, I mean, we talk about landing zone. I mean, it's what if what if the landing goes horribly wrong, if, if there's a, a runway incident? What actually could happen if the EU revoked equivalence? What would be the what would the impact look like? Impact would be um, would be very big for those firms that have business lines that are subject to equivalence. Um, so they would have to redomicile uh, or move parts businesses and people into the block to continue offering those services. Um, to uh, other EU countries. Now, many firms have already done that to some extent, obviously, in the run-up to Brexit. And they've had, in all the preparations for no deal, a few people have already been shifted to doing that. So the effect may not be um, so um, big as all that. The other thing to remember is certain things aren't qualified, aren't covered by... um, Equivalent, so things like deposit taking uh, and syndicated loans, for instance, those are you know, those are out of this already. So, yes, it has a very big business impact, but I think that's already be, that will be mitigated to some extent by the preparations the banks have already made here. All right, Edward, thank you very much. That's Edward Evans, our Brexit editor. Let's move things on, look at another big story today that Bloomberg's been right on top of. Uh, it concerns Michael Gove, uh, who is saying that the industry the um, uh, industry in general should brace itself for stricter border controls coming in the next year. He spoke in a private meeting uh, with lobby groups, and he said that UK-EU trade won't get preferential treatment after December the 31st. That could, of course, mean extra costs, delays for companies importing goods into the UK from Europe. So a bit of a shift to what our understanding was previously. Let's dig into this. We're joined now by Bloomberg's Joe Mays, who broke this story. Um, Joe, first of all, why has the government shifted its position on this? Well, I think the first thing to say is it's finally becoming explicit and clear and transparent about the meaning of some of the terms it's been using before. So previously, Boris Johnson was saying things like, we want a Canada-style deal with the EU, or if not that, an Australia-style deal. But it was all kind of euphemistic, and it wasn't really clear what all that meant. But 
yesterday Michael Gove was very explicit, very clear, spelling out this means a strict border with the EU. And it was kind of the first time we heard it with such clarity and such honesty. Um, and one of the key changes was them saying on imports, so goods coming in from the EU, we'll have those strict controls. Previously, they've been implying, oh, we'll have like a kind of grace period where goods can come in, almost like the stabilizers on the bicycle while everyone gets used to the new system. But now we're saying, no, no stabilizers, instant controls. And, and that's the change. Why are they doing it now? I think they're just fronting up finally to the, the trade-off that Brexit incurs, which is friction to trade in exchange for more freedom. And they're just being very honest about that now. Do you remember the term frictionless, they said? They'd be frictionless entirely between the two. Yeah, that's not now. Not going to happen. All right. So, I mean, how bad is this going to be for UK businesses? Well, in terms of the cost, that is a question which is still to be determined. I mean, Customs declarations is one of the big changes. So if you're bringing goods in now from the EU and indeed exporting, you'll need a customs declaration. And we, we've been speaking to customs agents over the last few months, and they say it costs you £35 per customs declaration. We have hundreds of consignments coming through each day into the UK for individual businesses. So the cost will be very significant. That's the bottom line here. And if you don't get it right, we get border disruption. If you arrive at the port without the right customs documents, you can be turned away. And that's where the concern for businesses, knock-on effects for supply chains, disruption occurring in that way. And then what about the effect on you and I, the general person in Britain, because presumably these costs, some of them, are going to get passed on to the consumer? You'd expect so. I think, especially when companies are operating on slim profit margins, so say, for example, a retailer, big supermarket, may have profit margins of, say, 5 6%, if that, it would be unlikely, I think, that they would stomach these costs themselves. You'd probably see them being passed on to the consumer or indeed by, to their suppliers in the supply chain, which could lead to those companies having cash flow problems because they're no longer, they set up their business model assuming a certain economics. And if that economics now changes because of Brexit, they have to change. And that could mean them laying off staff to accommodate and so on. It, it, it will ripple through the economy. Joe, I suppose another interesting aspect of this is the effect on Northern Ireland with the famous two borders, uh, one in the Irish Sea and one between Northern Ireland and the Republic, um, which again, the government did say at the time, well, no, this won't be a problem. But it, it, some of these will have to apply, I guess, even on the, on the North Sea border. Exactly. So especially that Irish sea border, like you mentioned. So yes, sorry, Irish sea, I'm getting my geography. No, indeed. So for goods coming from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, Michael Gove was saying there'll be light touch administration. Those are the words he used yesterday, which is a departure from Boris Johnson previously saying there'll be no checks. So again, we're beginning to have an acceptance of a reality there. But as you say, that will be costs on firms operating in Northern Ireland, which are currently bringing goods in from the UK. And they might have to reconsider whether it is economically viable to be to be based there or have that supply chain in that way. They might have to reroute their supply chain to the Republic of Ireland, for example. So big changes coming for businesses in those areas. But even light touch sounds to me like it's a little bit euphemistic as well. Is that the clarity that businesses need now? That is exactly the clarity they need now. I mean, we have a joint committee, which was part of the withdrawal agreement and the protocol on Northern Ireland. They're going to set that up and that will have to hammer out these, these, these final details, which are absolutely crucial for business to understand the reality they're going to face on 1st of January 2021, which they still don't have and they're still up in arms about. Joe, I suppose what the other thing with this is you've got uh, you know, the, the notion, and we all know it's there, that come this time next year, perhaps even a month or two earlier, we could be in a no-deal position. Now, a lot of what we're hearing now suggests that maybe 
that's almost becoming a concept the government's embracing if they're talking. Well, yes, there will be problems. There will be blocks. Are we actually moving psychologically almost to that point? I think we are. And I think what's crucially happened here is that a no-deal scenario is in, ve- in many ways quite similar to a deal scenario. And that's the new reality business faces, because under a Canada-style arrangement, which Boris Johnson has as his preferable outcome, that is a limited free trade agreement which generally reduces tariffs on goods. But all of the non-tariff barriers that we've just been speaking about, they automatically apply in a Canada-style arrangement. So the the kind of the best case scenario for business looks a lot like no deal, what no deal would have been uh, at the end of uh, last year. So if anything, there's more clarity for business on the de- on the, the destination here. It's just that that destination is not particularly desirable. And that's where we've, we've come to. So businesses are essentially being groomed here into a certain situation that uh, not a long time ago felt really unpalatable. If you look at the shift from pre-referendum to Theresa May's administration, to this one, we've seen that shift. Exactly. And so when Michael Gove was speaking yesterday, he said, this is a significant change, like we've been discussing, but crucially, he added, but we have time to prepare for that change. So the government's new line is, okay, this stuff is problematic and disruptive, but we've got you know, 10 months to get ready for it. But this is where Boris Johnson's Get Brexit Done slogan becomes quite counterproductive. I think Mm. many people in the nation think Brexit is done. And indeed, small traders who are kind of the key constituents here who need to get ready for these changes. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the well, world of politics. Speaking of a massacre, it was a bit of a massacre in Ireland uh, over the weekend with the election that really seemed to savage the two major parties. And Sinn Féin had more or well, higher percentage of the vote than either of the other two main parties. And a very interesting piece on The Telegraph this morning because he said Charles Moore has written to say how we all helped Sinn Féin win in Ireland. Why is Sinn Féin edged ahead in the Irish election? Part of the explanation, he says, is the same as applies all over continental Europe just now, that voters are fed up with mainstream parties, but there's something else. Over the past 30 years, the peace process in Ireland has been hailed too uncritically. Some of its achievements have been outstanding, but the heart of the Good Friday Agreement, which is supposed to be the process's crowning glory, was a dangerous ambiguity. Sinn Féin, the party of the IRA, laid aside violence as the price for its participation, but it never had to say its violence had been wrong, and the process showed you get to the negotiation negotiating table and to power itself by terror as long as you know when to stop well that's one view isn't it uh let me talk to you about a different story uh this is one that's been coming up on my twitter a lot i don't know what it says about my twitter a planned deportation flight to america to jamaica rather that has taken off ministers were forced though to remove more than half of those due to be on the plane after a court injunction a last minute legal action the home office had said that all of those who were due to fly were foreign nationals who had been convicted of criminal offences but then uh, the Labour MP and Windrush campaigner David Lammy was one of those who made the point that some of them came to the UK as children 
many of them in the Windrush scandals were British nationals. The government asserts they're not British nationals. The public have no guarantees. David Lammy there. Now, super spreader. Are you a super spreader? Well, I don't know. I thought this was about sitting on the tube, but apparently it's a bit more sinister. (laughs) Well, a UK businessman linked to 11 coronaviruses cases has spoken out for the first time. I imagine whoever interviewed him perhaps stayed uh, at some distance. (laughs) Gas salesman Steve Walsh from Hove in East Sussex contacted the the coronavirus at a work conference in Singapore before travelling to a French ski resort for a holiday on his way back to the UK. Five of the cases linked to Walsh are in England, two of which are understood to be GPs. Quite the journey, isn't it? And just shows how quickly this really is spreading. Um, And then, of course, the big announcement of the day from the government, the Prime Minister set to push ahead with the HS2 high-speed rail project linking London to the north, despite, of course, the political opposition and the spiralling costs. Boris Johnson plans to spend £5 billion as well on new bus and cycle routes as part of his agenda to, as he puts it, level up investment infrastructure for regions outside London. Um, We're going to get some more details later in the year in his national bus strategy, which are going to include affairs, electric buses and new priority road layouts to reduce congestion um, and then the government also plans to build 250 miles of cycle routes as a plan to double cycling in the UK by 2025, which is apt given that it's headed up by probably the country's most famous cyclist. Indeed. Well, I wonder if Joey Jones has cycled here this morning. Have you cycled here? I quite often cycle in, actually. Yeah. It is a very different thing cycling around London to when I first started, uh, when I was at, uh, started at Sky News uh, and in Westminster back in sort of 2004, 2005, I do think the, the, the lanes make a difference. They make the, the, when, Once you get on a lane, it's a whole different experience. But, I mean, a 250 miles right across the country, that's nothing. That's well, a drop in the ocean, isn't Well, indeed. It? And when you were talking about massive infrastructure projects, of course, HS2, I haven't properly introduced you. I should say your strategic council at Cicero, <laughs> Cicero Armo, Ammo? AMO. AMO. Yeah. And a former advisor to Theresa May, yeah. as we meant to Theresa May, as we mentioned before. So, okay, let's talk HS2 then. Um, is it a no-brainer for the government to do this? I think this was genuinely up in the air. Uh, let's not forget that Boris Johnson put it on ice as soon as he came into office. Um, some of his key advisers were hostile, uh, not just Dominic Cummings, but also Andrew Gilligan, transport advisor. So within Downing Street, uh, there, were, there was real hostility to it. And it's hugely expensive. Uh, the costs have spiralled. Some of that actually is because people aren't comparing like with like because this has been going on. Uh, building in inflation is part of what uh, is taking it over the, the 100 billion, but it's still massive. And I think what has made the Prime Minister's mind up in the end was the fact that he wants to do this levelling up. He wants to ensure that uh, that areas that have not been favoured with investment, regions that haven't been favoured over the years, get, get some more bang for their buck. And when he's looking around for anything else that might do it, uh, he has hasn't found an alternative. HS2 uh, may be imperfect. It may take years before that uh, impact is actually felt, but it is actually shovel-ready, as the Prime Minister would say. Isn't it a total political no-brainer, though? Even putting all the merits or or otherwise aside, given that it's a big post-Brexit infrastructure project, it's something he had to make a decision on one way or the other. It's going to serve the North, the people who have arguably put him into power. Uh, these all seem to point to, to, to giving it the green light. Um, I, look, I can I can absolutely see uh, why uh, many why supporters of HS2 would see it in that way, but 
the thing is, it is going to take a long time. He wants delivery now. And I think what Boris Johnson would have done is to consider whether was whether there was something that he could offer that f- former red wall of uh, erstwhile Labour constituencies that would make a difference over the course of a parliament. Right. Because this isn't going to do that. Uh, I think another consideration was that Andy Street, the the Conservative mayor of the West Midlands, is up for election in the next few months. Now this is this is something he has been fighting ver- tooth and nail for. And if this was slapped back in his face, I think that his chances of re-election against quite an established campaigner on the Labour side, Liam Byrne is now mm. uh, 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 going to be up against him, would have been more difficult. OK, well, let's move on to something even more contentious and in the immediate future, which is that wonderful thing, the cabinet reshuffle, which uh, leaves an awful lot of blood on the floor normally. Where It's going to happen on Thursday, we reckon. Valentine's Day massacre or something more moderate? Well, uh, Boris Johnson's first reshuffle was a jaw-dropping in its brutality. Uh, I think this one, uh, again, when he came in with this sweeping majority, there was a lot of big talk about the fact that he was going to reshape Whitehall, mash departments together, slim down the cabinet because it's way too big and cumbersome right at the moment. And a lot of that has gone away. So based on the expectations that were ramped up in November, December time, I think that it will probably feel a bit like a a damp squib. Nevertheless, significant number of... uh, Uh, senior ministers are likely to get the chop and there are new faces going to be coming in. But I think there is a danger for Boris Johnson and for his senior colleagues in that they talk big but don't necessarily follow through with that iconoclastic and radical vision that is pumped out. We've seen that uh, potentially on the reshuffle. We saw that actually with with HS2, the idea that he was going to go back to the drawing board and do something different. We're seeing the Boris Bridge from, uh, you know, Northern Ireland to Scotland, the idea of moving the House of Lords to York. None of those things are actually going to happen, most people would, uh, would assume. So there's a danger that if the gap between rhetoric and reality for this government becomes too pronounced, then that is really damaging for its credibility. Mm, yeah, I see that. You talk about new faces. I wonder how new the faces are going to be. Do you think this is a point to start promoting at least some of the 2019 intake, or is it too early? Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if some of them uh, go into ministerial posts, uh, although that is amazingly early. I mean, mm. that really is the fast track, uh, the conveyor belt. Uh, but but Boris Johnson wants to send out a signal not just to them as individuals, but to the constituencies that, that elected them that haven't voted Conservative for generations before, that he takes their... their them seriously as as voters and wants to make sure that their concerns are felt. I think there are new faces coming through. I mean, I don't think many people had heard of Rishi Sunak uh, a year ago, uh, and now he's banging on the door. Uh, uh, and and I think that you know it was genuinely in the balance whether or not he might take over in number eleven. Well, exactly. I mean, perhaps we should just put a few names in places as a sort of guess. I mean, it's a mug's game, I know. But um, Sajid Javid safe, you reckon? Uh, I um, maybe not for the long term. I do think there's real bad blood there. Uh, it does feel as though uh, the Chancellor has got on the wrong end of uh, you know a few tongue lashings from Downing Street advisers. And at the moment, he's putting together what's going to be a, a critical budget in, at the beginning of March. To, to lever him out of position within the Treasury would be very, uh, would really cause difficulty in that whole process. But I do think there's a cloud over his long term uh, uh, ability to, to be a key player in this government. Priti Patel, Dominic Raab, I mean, fair safe, I presume? Yes. Suggestions that the Defence Secretary, though, Ben Wallace, who's a long-term ally and acolyte of 
Boris Johnson uh, might not survive. So there are. So we are talking about senior figures here within the administration. A lot of to- a lot of suggestions that a number of high-profile women, and there aren't obviously uh, enough uh, high-profile women in the cabinet, might be on the way out as well. So Andrea Leadsom, the uh, the the business secretary, Liz Truss seems to be hanging by a thread uh, as well. Yes, uh, Nikki Morgan was no- only ever going to be doing a sticking plaster job there uh, as well, and that uh, that's. Uh, a problem uh, in terms of the uh, the spread and the and the makeup of the of the cabinet, but it doesn't seem to be a problem that is uh, is overly uh, preoccupying the the prime minister in presumably, terms of the optics. Presumably, also an opportunity then to promote even more women, given it's something that that has been discussed. Uh, I think there will be some. Uh, Victoria Atkins is a highly regarded yeah. uh, minister, uh, currently Home Office, I think, uh, mm. and and uh, a previously Ministry of Justice, uh, so she might well come through. But again, she's not a household name, to put it mildly. What are you hearing about the alleged rift between Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson? I mean, is anything in that? Uh, look, there is always a possibility that but that Dominic Cummings, who is a combustible uh, individual, uh, that at some point his uh, his evident desire to be uh, to have people talking about him uh, would irritate might irritate his boss. This morning, uh, there were journalists outside his front door to ask him what he thought about HS2, and he he, he came up with some. I, I if I'd been doing that doorstep, I wouldn't have had foggiest what he was talking <laughs> about. He said that it's, this is one for PJ Masks, which is some TV TV det- a kids detective show. Nighttime is the right time to be fighting crime. I have no idea what is going on. <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 this is, what this is all about, apart from perhaps trying to make a journalist look silly. But but sometimes you see that and you do wonder whether this is really for the long term. But, you know, uh, there were doubts about his staying power back in uh, September when they came back and, uh, and were on the back foot in Parliament. And he completely confounded those, turning it around with a, uh, with a stonking election victory within months. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.